Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Corbin Barthold. Although Section 230 has historically been a staple of this podcast, it's been a while since we've devoted much attention to it. I wouldn't be surprised if some of our listeners have welcomed a little break from the topic. But that break ends today. I'm joined by Ari Cohn, Tech Freedom's inaugural free speech counsel. He's the perfect person to get us caught up on all the silly, crazy goings on in the bizarro, bad trip, mad tea party vortex that has formed around Section 230. Ari, welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, This is your first appearance on the podcast since joining Tech Freedom. It's great to have you both uh, at the organization and here on the show. Uh, I'm going to start with a question I actually haven't asked you even in private yet. Um, You're so committed to free speech that the term is in your job title. Uh, Why? Well, you know, what drives you? Uh, You know, actually, it's funny. Um, I grew up in Skokie, Illinois, uh, site of one of the legendary First Amendment cases in our country's history when the Nazis wanted, the American Nazi Party wanted to march through the highest concentration of Holocaust survivors uh, around. And that happened obviously before I was born. I'm old, but I'm not that old. Uh, But growing up, I learned about that every year in school. My parents made me watch the movie Skokie when I was young. Uh, And they kind of got me into that groove of being the hipster civil libertarian about it. Um, And I, I think at one point, Uh, I'm pretty sure I was set up. At one point, my parents said to me something to the extent of, um, I understand why somebody represented them, but why did it have to be a Jewish lawyer? And me in, if you think I'm full of righteous indignation now, you just imagine me as like a hormonal teenager. It is terrible. (laughs) Wait, this is you mellowed out right now? Yeah, this is me me mellowed. I'm getting better with age, like a fine wine. Uh, but I, I think I, I remember going like indiscriminately berserk and going off on some tangent about principle and, uh, you know, defending what it, you know, what's right, even if it doesn't serve your interests or, or what have you. And I'm fairly certain at this point in my life, looking back on it, that that's the reaction they wanted me to have. And they were like totally setting me up. Uh, but, you know, that, that kind of, inculcation at a, at a young age um, kind of drove a lot of it. And then when I was in college, actually, one of my, uh, well, frenemies, we were, we were definitely uh, ideological enemies at first, but ended up becoming friends, uh, got in trouble for uh, something he wrote uh, in the, the school newspaper. And uh, I, I witnessed an organization that I would actually end up going to work for, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Education, uh, come to his defense, and that kind of rekindled that you know long-standing interest that I had, and, and the, the passion that I felt during that indiscriminate rage at my parents, uh, and it kind of just went from there. And uh, you know, I, I got a couple of years into working, slogging away at a big law firm, and thought to myself, I really just need to to get out and be doing something that I, I really love doing, and the rest was history. Nice. Your your story reminds me of uh, Keith Richards in his biography says, I think it was his uncle. Um, he got into the guitar because his uncle just played it in front of him. 
and then just, you know, put it down on a counter and just left the room. Uh, so that's you, except with uh, free speech. I love it. <laughs> well, I mean, everyone's got to have an origin story, right? Well, yours is good. And I, and I totally ambushed you with that. So you, you did very well. Um, well, enough philosophy. Section 230. If you're listening right now and you don't know what Section 230 is, uh, welcome. I have no idea how you've wandered into this podcast, but it's great to have you. Um, but still, uh, there's so much misunderstanding around what Section 230 is and what it does that I think it's probably worth the 60 seconds it might take you, Ari, to give a, a Section 230 for Dummies explainer. Well, Section 230 for Dummies is pretty much what everybody needs at this point. Uh, a lot of dummies out there. But uh, Section 230 is really, really simple. It is a very short statute. And I urge anyone listening that hasn't read it to take the time to read it. It will take you less time than it takes to eat breakfast, seriously. The operative main provision says that uh, no provider of an interactive computer service, such as a website uh, or an app, shall be held liable as the publisher of information provided by a third party. Basically, what that means is Twitter, Facebook, they're not liable for what I say. Uh, I am not liable under Section 230 as the user for things other people say that I retweet. Donald Trump famously used that defense uh, in a case against him uh, and won on it, rightfully. Um, that's the major operative provision. And the way it's been applied by the courts is that the uh, platform, so to speak, I, I hesitate sometimes to use that word because of the entire publisher versus platform nonsense that's out there. Uh, you know, I, I don't like to give that any air, but platforms, for lack of a better term for it, um, are immunized for any decision that falls within traditional publication, uh, you know, activities, such as whether to post things, to remove them, to withdraw them, to edit them, to mod modify them, uh, so on and so forth. Basically, what the law does is it says social media platforms, websites, forums, what have you, they can decide for themselves what kind of community they want to be. They can set their own rules as to what kind of content they want to allow or disallow, and they can enforce those rules. And just because they do that doesn't make them liable for all of the content that everyone anywhere at all times posts on their site. Well, you mentioned Donald J. Trump, and uh, I'm sorry to go straight there, but uh, I mean, it, it. how can we not? So... The former president has sued uh, Facebook, Twitter, and uh, YouTube owner Google. Uh, and he wrote in an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, or Ghost wrote, quote, this coercion and coordination, he's discussing coercion and coordination between those websites and the government, is unconstitutional. The Supreme Court has held that Congress can't use private actors to achieve what the Constitution prohibits it from doing itself. In effect, big tech has been illegally deputized as the censorship arm of the U.S. government. And part of his claim uh, in these suits is that the, quote, deputization 
that he refers to in that passage is occurring through Section 230. So what's up with that theory? Uh, well, it's hard to say because it's just a whole lot of nonsense, um, as one might expect. And there's absolutely no way that Donald Trump wrote those words. So let's be clear about that. Uh, but the argument boils down to uh, the fact that people seem to think that because Congress has decided to provide an immunity to social media platforms for their content moderation, uh, that that has somehow uh, enabled them to do things that you know, would violate the First Amendment if done by Congress. Uh, on one hand, that's like kind of unintentionally true uh, because the First Amendment simply doesn't apply to private actors that are not the government. Uh, but the more, what they're really getting at is that this is basically Congress saying, you should go do this thing that we can't do. And that's completely unsupported by a very long body of case law that has to do with um, Congress trying to do things that it, that it couldn't do through private actors. Uh, famously, a lot of these people that promote this theory, uh, most notably disgraced law professor Jed Rubenfeld and um, tech bro, and I think Yale law grad uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, uh, say that a case about the uh, railway regulations proves that Section 230 uh, is unconstitutional. And they usually treat it with one or two sentences and ignore the fact that in that case, which dealt with uh, a federal railway regulation that basically gave uh, railways permission to do testing on uh, employees after certain incidents for substances, uh, were, you know, the fact of the matter is those, that regulation was highly coercive. What the government did was said, you can test these people, but also we get access to the biological samples. You cannot say we're not going to test uh, in a contract. Uh, you also can't put those people in the field if they refuse testing. The government made it very clear that you're going to be responsible if you don't do this testing and you don't share the, the drug tests and the substance tests with us, and you cannot divest yourself of the power to, to do this testing. That was just a highly coercive and just a, a very highly problematic uh, regulation in terms of Fourth Amendment standards, because the government couldn't have just necessarily do whatever you know drug testing it wants on people. The court decided, you know, I'm I'm getting too far into the weeds on this. <laughs> I've been writing about this for a week now, so it's hard to not sometimes. Um, the, the bottom line is that Section 230 gives websites the option of creating rules, the option of how to enforce them, and doesn't say anything about whether they should or how they have to do it. The government doesn't have an interest in it. Uh, the fact of the matter is Section 230 is pretty facially neutral in terms of content moderation. It doesn't direct any particular results. That is a far cry from the level of coercion that you would need to find state action in a, you know, a, a permissive statute like Section 230 that doesn't require anything. So what level of state coercion would it take? Because, you know, it's um, the other 
theory that's being raised is, is not that Section 230 is the source of the government coercion, but that uh, current government action is. And of course, not long after these lawsuits dropped, the Biden administration, you know, there's a bit of a kerfuffle with them making some strong statements, trying to pressure Facebook specifically to be more aggressive in taking down vaccine information, misinformation. Um, and although I certainly think that uh, the Biden administration um, hasn't yet crossed that line, I also think what they're doing is dumb. But uh, where is that line? I mean, are they approaching it? Are they creating a risk that they will uh, cross it? So I, I agree with you that they haven't crossed the line yet. But I will say uh, in any other circumstance where a lawyer would be advising a client and a client said something anywhere close to what the Biden administration said after these lawsuits dropped, they would be getting an earful of it from their lawyer. I mean, the Biden administration's foot is so far down its throat that it has lapped its investment records. Uh, it's just insane that they would come out and say these things right after these lawsuits are filed. Because even if they don't establish the case, they make it sound more plausible and they give it a little bit more leg. And that's just not, it's not something you should do when you're facing a lawsuit. And, you know, federal government's been a federal government. But, uh, you know, the, the things that have been sufficiently coercive in the past uh, are things like threats of prosecution. Uh, for instance, in the current communications case out in, of the Eighth Circuit, where literally there was a threat, if you don't cut off this service, uh, we are going to prosecute. That you know that was found to be coercive, but on the other hand, a lot of what's being claimed here is that the threats to amend or repeal Section Two Thirty are having that coercive impact sufficient to create state action on behalf of private actors. So I, I think that's that's that can't be right because legislators do have the right to determine, you know, how to regulate and, and what legislation to consider in response to contemporary events. And there's a certain amount of legislative bluster that is inherent in that. There's a ton of reading that goes on in every single uh, regulated industry about trying to fix problems by threatening legislation. That can't be right. And courts have held that the threat of regulation doesn't in itself create state action because um, for whatever the company does thereafter. These companies have a, an ability to convince legislators that we can fix the problem without legislation. That would kind of decimate the whole kind of give and take of, of the process. Uh, that being said, you know, it's kind of ironic that they would raise these issues given the fact that perhaps as much or more than the people they are assailing, their side of the aisle actually does the same exact thing. Saying, if you don't moderate content in the way that we would like, uh, we are going to repeal or amend Section 230. Uh, so they're setting themselves up for an argument that their repeal bill is unconstitutional because it was motivated and you know, used to browbeat a company into you know, doing something that it wouldn't ordinarily have done in violation of the First Amendment. It's, there's, there's a, a lack of self-awareness that shouldn't be surprising at this point, but nevertheless continues to shut. 
there are so many uh, fun little angles at which to look at that loss. I mean, my, my personal favorite is that Trump seeks to represent a, a class as though he's similarly situated to other people who have been uh, banned from one of these websites. Um, but moving on, we've already given it more, more attention than it probably deserves. Another interesting Section 230 development is the Texas Supreme Court's recent decision in a case involving Facebook. Um, plaintiffs brought claims alleging that uh, Facebook was responsible in a legal sense for their having been victims of sex trafficking. Um, tell us what's going on with that decision. So that came about... Um broadly under the Fox of Sesta amendments. And I'll get to that in a second, uh, which uh, you know allowed certain claims for sex trafficking uh, to proceed without Section 230 protection. But what that what those amendments did were name the very specific statutes, uh, the very specific things that claims could be pursued on. The Texas Supreme Court was deciding whether Texas's state trafficking laws could be used without running headfirst into Section 230. And very plainly, by the, the text of the statute, Section 230 and the FOSTA-SESTA amendments name the specific federal statutes under which claims can be brought. Uh, so the Texas Supreme Court had to find this way to, to decide that the Texas claim could uh, go forward, the state claim. But they did that by reading an ambiguity into the statute and saying, well, because it's ambiguous, we can interpret the statute as allowing the state analogs to those federal laws. The problem being that there is no ambiguity in the FOSTA SESTA amendment at all. Again, they name the precise federal statutes that people bringing claims for sex trafficking can sue under. And in fact, the state, uh, the state criminal, uh, state criminal proceedings are included below as things that can be pursued. But state civil claims were particularly not included. In fact, also one of the earlier drafts of Fox and Sesta actually would have allowed any state civil cause of action to proceed uh, for sex trafficking, and that was changed to just include the federal statute. Texas Supreme Court said, well, we find it ambiguous because this lawyer is arguing to the contrary, that there's a, a reasonable reading that would allow the state claims to go forward. But if we created ambiguity in statutes every time a lawyer made a stupid argument that didn't line up with the text of the statute, we wouldn't be anywhere. We'd be reinterpreting statutes left and right because hundreds of stupid arguments are made in court every day. The, the, the court really strained and engaged in Olympic levels of legal and mental gymnastics to find this ambiguity. It's a, it's a fascinating decision because actually, as you read it in the beginning, everything looks kind of hunky-dory. It dismisses all the common law claims, albeit somewhat grudgingly. Um, and it gives relatively straightforward, uh, re, you know, it, it, undertakes a relatively straightforward application of section 230 in those sections. Um, Grudgingly. It recognizes that expanding liability 
uh, would actually lead websites to take down more content and would be counterproductive uh, for those who believe Facebook, quote, for those who believe Facebook and others, such platforms should refuse to censor their users' speech. I object to the word censor, but it's still a correct assessment of the situation. Um, and then they get to the statutory claims and it just all goes completely off the rails. Um, and you mentioned FOSTA, but I think it's worth pointing out. It just says the decision that FOSTA gives additional support for its holding. And its main reason for letting the claim under the Texas civil statute go through is this just absolutely credulous acceptance at face value of the plaintiff's conclusory allegation that Facebook knowingly benefits from having sex traffickers on the site. And it uses that uh, claim to make the connection that Facebook has done affirmative acts that take it outside of Section 230 immunity. And the plaintiffs never identify what those acts are. Um, so in a way, it's a very, uh, very generous interpretation of, of, uh, of a pleading standard, letting that claim go through. Yeah, well, you know, state courts uh, tend to be like that sometimes. <laughs> but, you know, the, the thing is, though, like the Texas Supreme Court, I have no doubt in my mind, knew exactly what it was doing. And here's the rub. The, and they kind of foreshadowed it when they went through that rather straightforward analysis of Section 230. They spent quite a bit of time covering the quote unquote disagreements over Section 230, basically giving two pages of, of you know, citations to Justice Thomas, uh, they knew, they knew damn well that the only place that Facebook can take this afterward, after they're done, is the Supreme Court. And they know that taking any Section 230 case to the Supreme Court right now uh, is an invitation for Justice Thomas to, to Justice Thomas. Uh, and they know that, that that's a perilous position for them because you open the door and there's no telling what havoc could be reaped. So, you know, if you ask me, I think the, the Texas Supreme Court uh, knew that there was probably a minimal chance that this case gets appealed. And I don't know if that's going to be borne out or not. Uh, but, you know, it, it's a, a proposition that's not without some credibility. All right. Well, next up on our Section 230 buffet... And this one is a real head scratcher to me. Um, it's a Second Circuit decision or case uh, called Doman versus Vimeo. Vimeo is a video platform service. Um, and it, the case involves a leader of a church. I think he's a leader. Um, his videos on Vimeo centered around the concept of gay conversion therapy. Uh, one fun tidbit of the case is, is that uh, this gentleman is very explicit that his sexual orientation is former homosexual. That's, that's the box he would want to be on the form. He I is, guess. he is deliberate. Um, and so Vimeo took, took down his materials. The second circuit affirmed the dismissal of the lawsuit on a straightforward interpretation of section uh, 230C2. Now, there's the distinction between section 230C1 and section 230C2. Generally, we at Tech Freedom like to see cases dismissed under C1 because it, it does encompass 
all acts that are undertaken as a, as a publisher, which includes deciding that you don't want something published on your, your, your platform. So I would have liked to have seen it dismissed under C2, but I'll take, I'll take 230C2. That's great. I think I might've said C1 is what I would have preferred. <laughs> I would have preferred C1. It happened under C2, which I'll take, uh, which says that the, uh, a website, any interactive computer service can take things down that it finds. And there's a list of items, but it includes just objectionable. And it's all, it's what the provider considers objectionable, which is also important here because you end up with this straightforward application that Vimeo considers the, this gay conversion material to be objectionable. It seems like that's a pretty hard thing to plead around. You basically need to say they somehow did it in, uh, bad faith. I guess I'm not even really sure what that would mean. And yet, uh, the Second Circuit has just granted on banc reviews. So Ari, you know, what's up with that? It's really hard to tell. And you know, this kind of decision, the original decision, is like kind of annoyingly what we get sometimes. And I understand why the court did. The court said, okay, there's controversy over whether C1 or C2A uh, applies. But because it would even suffice under C2A, we don't even need to get into that morale. I get why they do it. It's, you know, judicial avoidance, uh, you know, of, of controversies they don't necessarily need. But it kind of muddies the water because people point to it and say, well, you know, C1 doesn't apply for taking down content. That's C2A. Look at this court decision. Uh, but they don't understand why the court did that. It's, it's an even if that was the relevant provision. It, this claim would still fail. So it's, a, it's annoying, but I get why it happened. The en banc uh, grant is, is kind of mystifying to me. There's a couple ways it could go. Uh, it could be maybe the court wanted to make clear that, hey, no, like B1 does actually provide the, the relevant immunity here, and it fails under that. And, I, you know, that's actually kind of plausible to me because I'm not sure that the Second Circuit is really in a super big hurry to create, you know, big conflicts over Section 230. There have been some, you know, rumblings about things involving uh, C1, but more on the, the algorithm side, which we'll get to later in the episode. Uh, but that's, but in terms of taking content down and, and moderating content, I haven't seen a lot out of the Second Circuit that really indicates that there are judges champing at the bit to kind of rein in content. That doesn't seem to me to be likely. But if there are, the other place that it could go is the court issuing some kind of grandiose opinion about what good faith means and what otherwise objectionable means, uh, which could create huge problems in terms of just, I mean, First of all, it's going to create circuit splits and going to, going to lead to a Supreme Court decision sooner rather than later on in that round. Uh, but, you know, it just it has a, an opportunity to wreak havoc. But I actually have a problem with the grants for a different reason. The Second Circuit should have laughed plaintiff's counsel out of the room because in the en banc petition, he cited, uh, the, the lawyer cited malware bites as a Supreme Court holding. It's... And to be clear for listeners who don't know, what he was citing was Justice Thomas's statement uh, concurring in the denial of cert. And to cite that as a Supreme Court holding 
is either A, the sign of a lawyer who is just flagrantly incompetent or a lawyer who is flagrantly dishonest. And I think that that deserves a fair amount of criticism because the Supreme Court held absolutely nothing in Mallory. Yeah, I had a, a quick glance at that paper and it is fascinating. Um, whole side topic we, we can't dive into of um, to what degree should judges when they have discretionary review power consider the quality of the lawyer before them in the briefing and and should a case get um, rejected that otherwise would have been granted or vice versa based on the quality of the lawyering or is it really more about sort of dispensing justice independent of that but in this case you do a, you do have these cases where something happens and the lawyer um you know I don't know this guy I don't even know his name but um I, I'm willing to go and say this of this paper like the lawyer's just kind of there and you kind of hope that that lawyer doesn't, after the event occurs, go to the bar and buy a whiskey and say, oh, yeah, I'm a success. God, am I good? It's like, no, you were just kind of there. The judges have their agenda and they're going to do what they're going to do. And, and you were just kind of there. Um, my uh, yeah, my main concern, I suppose, is that uh, the allegation brought up in earlier stages that Vimeo wasn't consistent in its moderation. Well, you know, you took down my material, but look at this other similar stuff that you didn't take down. That means it's bad faith. I think my, my nightmare scenario is that that argument gets traction because it is so blind to the reality of content moderation on websites that have the amount of, well, not even, you know, on websites that have the amount of material that a Facebook or a, a Twitter or Vimeo has, but even on smaller scales, I mean, it's, it really doesn't, your, your website doesn't need to be that big before um, any notion that you could possibly be consistent becomes um, just unrealistic. But here's the thing, even the, he didn't even necessarily claim that he, they were leaving up substantially similar content. Uh, he, the, the lower, the original decision noted that, and the lower court noted, that he, uh, the video left up content that said, you know, you know, homosexuality is not biblically acceptable, yada, yada, yada. But it took down his videos that were essentially based solely on, you know, the, the idea of conversion. And that stuff. And so, like, there, there's a distinction here between what is even like consistent or inconsistent, because Vimeo has plenty of stuff up there that criticizes, you know, homosexuality from a biblical standpoint. They took down his stuff because it violated their specific prohibition against uh, conversion therapy, uh, you know, promulgation and what have you. So that, that's there, there's a there's a question there as to whether they were even inconsistent in the first place. But you're right, uh, you know the. Take Twitter, for example, and I know Twitter and Vimeo are different scales, but at 6,000 tweets a second, the idea that Twitter could do anything consistently is just complete nonsense. There is just no way. You can't, yeah. I can't yeah. even you know, write my emails consistently. And I certainly don't write as many emails as Vimeo has videos. But you're certainly right that even apart from scale, um, and we've discussed this on the show before. I mean, just the concept of consistency at all is just illusory when it comes to, to content. Um, and not only that, too it's context kind of, specific. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it, um, it's inherently viewpoint. In a yeah. Sense. Yeah. So we'll see what happens with that. I'm, I'm, I'm 
I'm mystified by that grant. But we we will see. This, we'll get an answer. Hopefully, the Second Circuit gives some briefing instructions that clarifies kind of where they want to go with this. Yeah. Well, one more court case I'd like to touch on briefly. You previewed it uh, a moment ago. Is Gonzalez versus Google? It's a case in the Ninth Circuit. Um, 170 pages of it. Yes. Well, I'm going to focus in on one small part, you know, because uh, the plaintiffs brought Anti-Terrorism Act claims against um, the the trio you sue, I guess, Facebook, Twitter and Google owned YouTube. Uh, they alleged that those websites allowed ISIS to post videos and other content to communicate um, their group's message and radicalize new recruits and, and generally further its mission and that they were legally responsible for letting that happen. Uh, the main decision is almost entirely just a straightforward application of Section 230 dismissing, I think, virtually all the claims. Maybe mm -hmm. all. I think it was almost all. Uh, but um, Judge Marsha Berzon issued a concurrence in which she urged the Ninth Circuit to reconsider its precedent on Bonk uh, to the extent that it extend Section 230 immunity to the use of machine learning algorithms that recommend content and connect users. She wrote, quote, in my view, these types of targeted recommendations and affirmative promotion of connections and interactions among otherwise independent users are well outside the scope of traditional publication. Um, and I'll, I'll say this much, you know, unlike, say, the Trump lawsuit that we um, discussed at the outset, like this is an interesting thought uh, and it is a reasonable issue to raise. Um, what do you think? I mean, so I don't love the argument that it's far outside the scope of traditional, uh, you know, publication activity that for me, skates a little bit too close to the line uh, of what the Supreme Court has roundly rejected in terms of, you know, reevaluating First Amendment principles in light of new technologies and what have you. You know, it's, it strikes a little too close at, well, you know, the internet wasn't around when the printing press was there and the First Amendment was passed. So maybe, you know, ratified, so maybe, you know, we apply different standards to the internet. I don't, I don't like getting anywhere close to that line from, from a First Amendment standpoint. But, you know, I, I agree with you that it's an interesting and kind of really complicated area of discussion. But I, I think there's a couple of things that, that are important. One, I think without algorithms, first of all, uh, a lot of this, a lot of these websites would be useless. Uh, you know, imagine, I mean, frankly, I don't use recommendations. I, I don't use YouTube much at all for that matter. But, you know, I don't really, recommended videos aren't really things that I, I, I look at much. Um, I never really pay attention to social media as you should be friends with this, these people's suggestions, just because, uh, you know, I, I don't particularly find it helpful. But a lot of people do. And I think that that, that process of ordering content and arranging content, which we saw was a First Amendment concern in the Florida lawsuits uh, against their law. Uh, you know, one of the reasons Judge Hinkle struck it down was he said, you are telling these platforms, how they should arrange and present content. Uh, and a lot of that happens algorithmically. So, you know, I think that, that there's, a, there's an issue, uh, there's a First Amendment issue generally in this quote unquote war on algorithms that we've been seeing. Uh, but, you know, I also think people maybe underestimate a little bit how difficult it is to create an algorithm that would 
recommend things and put things together, but not if that content falls within these categories. Because what falls within those categories varies widely. People get around algorithms all the time by naming things, different things, and changing wordings. It's really difficult to keep up. And it's really difficult to, to code an algorithm that can actually, with any meaningful accuracy, uh, you know, adjust its recommendations to exclude certain types of content. It's really difficult. I think what you get there at the end of the day is, okay, we're just not going to use algorithms. And that leads back to the point, well, without algorithms, the internet is just one glob of chronological bullshit that you can't sort through in any meaningful way. I think, yeah, you get to the heart of the matter in bringing up the constitutional principle that changing technology is not supposed to substantially affect the scope of constitutional rights. Yes, we're dealing with a statute here, but it's a similar idea. The websites are acting as publishers when they decide the order that material will be presented. That's exactly what a newspaper does when it decides which articles it will be presented in, you know, in what order on its paper. They're just doing it with a new technology. They're not doing it with an individual human decision being made each time they're using an algorithm. To say that's not protected, really, it's almost like saying the websites don't get to be protected as publishers, you know, because they don't use a printing press to make their material. Um, the function is a publisher function, even if the technology used, you know, the method used is not uh, something that uh, newspapers, you know, could have used because they didn't have them. And, you know, another sign that I think the attack on algorithms, the attempt to take algorithms out of Section 230 protection is flawed, um, is that it would basically turn the statute on its, its head. There is so much more to content curation on a website than leave up or take down material. Uh, the question of reach and the order in which material is presented to you is a huge part of your experience on the website, just as, you know, what the headline in a newspaper is, is a huge part of your experience of the newspaper. Um, and as a result, those decisions uh, are a huge number of sort of the universe of decisions that need Section 230 protection from these lawsuits. So if you made it so that people could sue over questions of algorithmic reach, it would basically gut the statute. I mean, it will render it a dead letter, which is a sign that it's not a correct reading of the statute. Yeah. And Judge Brisson says like, oh, well, newspapers don't traditionally do that. And I don't think that's necessarily right. The classified ads of your newspapers put those, all those, those lonely people seeking, you know, mates, uh, they put those sections right next to each other. They didn't put the uh, male seeking females, then put the job description, the job ads in the middle, and then the female seeking males after that, they put all of those personal ads together. They did arrange them in some, in some way. And they might not have said, this person, you might be interested in that person. But I don't think you need to get that granular level to really understand the arrangement of things is actually something that has been done for, for ages. Yeah, well, we'll we'll see if those arguments get any uh, traction. It certainly seems to be something I read 
increasingly frequently among judges. I think it would be just, yeah, fundamentally sort of a misunderstanding of, of changing technology. And it's not just judges. I mean, there's, there's a large push right now to address the, the problems that people see in algorithms. And of course, I'm sure a lot of these people don't even know how algorithms work. <laughs> you know, a lot of them probably do. I can't say that I have an in-depth mechanical you know, computer science understanding of how algorithms work. But I know that it's not as simple as writing four lines of code and calling it a day. Uh, and, and, you know, these, this is actual, it's hard work. There's a reason there are huge teams of people working on it. And maybe one day we'll be able to get it right. But the fact of the matter is we won't know if companies just have to throw up their hands and say, okay, we're not going to use algorithms because any screw up is going to, you know, land us to, you know, with a jury verdict or, or at least having to get to summary judgments and, you know, cost us enormous legal fees every time somebody finds a problem with content promoted by our algorithms. You know, that part of the whole, you know, philosophy, to go back to your uh, tech philosophy podcast, of Section 230 is allowing that kind of innovation to flourish and finding out where it goes, even if we can't do it perfectly right away because nothing is ever done perfectly right away and we need to be able to make mistakes. And that's kind of the whole philosophy of free speech too. You need to be able to make mistakes in your thinking and in your speech and your writing because that's how you get to the ultimate conclusion that is hopefully truth. I think a lot of people, uh, yeah, no, it, 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 a lot of people are uncomfortable with that mess. Um, you know, one thing as we look at the cases we've we've reviewed here, it it really shows the incoherence of the case against 230 to my mind. I mean, so we've discussed the Trump lawsuit where the plaintiff is shouting, you took stuff down. No, the Texas Supreme Court case where the plaintiffs are shouting, you left stuff up. No, we've got Doman versus Bameo in the Second Circuit. You took stuff down. No. <laughs> and Gonzalez, you left stuff up. No. Um, you know, so I think we've covered pretty well uh, in, in a little nutshell, you know, the moderator's dilemma here. Um, well, in, uh, in closing, I think it'd be remiss of us if we're doing a 2.30 extravaganza to omit what's going on on, on the Hill. So let's, uh, in wrapping up, maybe briefly cover uh, bills that have been introduced. I admit, I just find the Section 230 reform bills utterly tedious. Um, I, for one, don't track them too closely. Uh, but if there's anything in that smorgasbord that you would like to highlight, please do so. Well, so first of all, that was a great tie-in because you took stuff down. No, you left stuff up. No, is literally exactly like the mirror, you know, the, the exact same thing that's going on with legislation. And it is mercifully the only reason why nothing will probably meaningfully get done legislatively. Uh, because both sides are throwing legislation out there that are fundamentally opposed to the purposes and the legislation of the other side in this. And, you know, partisan gridlock for the win once more, um, preventing themselves, preventing them from hurting us because they can not agree on what they want to do. Um, my favorite crack pottery when it comes to this is. President actually both a federal and a state bill. 
think it's in the, the, the Desjardins bill and also in one of the bills that was just introduced in the Texas Special Senate, where they basically say, uh, you know, you will be liable, you platforms will be liable if you uh, censor constitutionally protected speech. However, you can avoid this problem, this liability, by proclaiming that you are a publisher, which you, you kind of get where they're going with it, but it's just a striking example of how nobody knows how any of this works. Because Twitter can say it's a publisher up and down and left and right, but as long as Section 230 is there, what they say doesn't matter. Section well, I know that Senator Warner's pro-speech act had that provision. Is that not even the only federal bill? That's that, not, that, that is not even the only one. Um, uh, yeah, I have, uh, it's, yeah, it's H.R. 83 from, from Deja L.A. Which I, I'll read the, I'll read the, um, the actual, uh, is it in this one? Maybe it was in, in a different, it was in, it's in the, it's in the Warner bill, but it's also in another one. And it is in the Texas bill. But, you know, Facebook and Twitter and all these social media platforms do say they are publishers. Section 230 acknowledges they are publishers, and that is the reason they need to be protected from traditional publisher liability. It doesn't matter if they proclaim themselves to be publishers. That doesn't change the fact that they are not legally liable as publishers. So that's kind of, that just kind of sticks out to me as like nobody who's writing legislation on this stuff actually has any idea how it works or what they're talking about. Uh, and, you know, that, that insipid wired piece uh, of the other month about everything we know about Section 230 is wrong, kind of mocks uh, you know, people for criticizing Section 230 critics by saying they don't know what they're talking about. But it's true, none of these people have any idea what the fuck they're talking about. It's, that, that, that is what it is, you know, I'm sorry. Uh, but you know, I, I think one of the other, one of the ones that actually gives me some pause and reason for concern, not because I think it has any meaningful chance of passing. None of these bills have a meaningful chance of passing because the Democrats all want platforms to take more stuff down. The Republicans all want people to take more, leave more stuff up. None of them are going to have the votes to get anything through Congress. So you know, this might be just uh, a lost cause uh, for me worrying. But nevertheless, uh, you know. When you live and breathe this stuff all day, that's what you do. Um, it's the the Warner Bill um, that would a the thing that actually gives me pause is, is that it actually says that Section C one should be an affirmative defense. So that does two things. One, it tells me that Senator Warner actually also has no idea what he's talking about. Uh, and I say that because most courts treat Section 230 as an affirmative defense. Nevertheless, they treat it on a motion to dismiss and if they can dismiss based on that defense, if it clearly and dispositively uh, precludes the claim. So you don't have to go through uh, you know, all the steps of litigation. But what he's trying to signal to the courts is, you should make these people go past the motion to dismiss. But that, that's what, what I get he's trying to signal uh, with this bill. And it, it's, it's nonsense because courts already treated this as an affirmative defense for the most part. Uh, but that, that signal is kind of dangerous to me because the entire point of Section 230 is to kind of short circuit 
this kind of litigation. It's to make sure that these the websites aren't subject to this numerous and costly litigation. And I don't think people really know how much this costs. But even on a motion to dismiss on a very simple one to two count claim, you're not looking at anything less than $25,000 just for the motion to dismiss. And $25,000 is if you don't have expensive. You know, that is, it is, that is just a baseline minimum you're going to pay. And you think about all these lawsuits that people are going to be filing, uh, that's going to add up to a lot very quickly. But you know, that wouldn't be enough. So that signal wouldn't really be enough to, to cause me a terrible concern. But there's also just some other provisions. And it, it, you, know, you can go on his uh, website and look at the red line for, for his bill yourself. But the, I mean, there's another one that is the injunctive relief card out, where um, Section 230 doesn't immunize for uh, requests for injunctions to take down or prevent dissemination of material that is likely to cause irreparable harm. Just what a bushy, meaningless statement that is. First of all, you don't, there is no legal right generally to have a platform take down things that might cause harm. That's just, there, there has to be something more than that. And a lot of these, a lot of the, you know, nonsense about Section 230 completely just obfuscates the, obfuscates the, the you have to have an underlying cause of thing for it to make a bit of difference in the first place. And there is no cause of action for most of this stuff. But, you know, irreparable harm, you know, might be a, a mushy, you know, a mushy phrase, but at least there's kind of a judicially accepted uh, approach for it. But you don't just like, what am I going to go say, oh, that person said something mean to me, I'm going to file a motion for an injunction to have them take it down and they can't dismiss it based on Section 230. I'm going to get somewhere for it. And, you know, maybe uh, we'll just convince them through the threat of that $25,000 price tag they're going to pay to, you know, uh, take it down. I don't know. I, I, I don't like it. And then well, we have seen with the Texas Supreme Court, as I discussed, you know, their willingness yeah. to say, uh, oh, you knowingly benefited, uh, at least at the pleading stage. So onward right. and upward. It's not an unreasonable concern, I think, you know, that's especially in the state courts, which, you know, are maybe a little bit less um, concerned with technicalities sometimes to be diplomatic. Well, you know, <laughs> for one thing, some states don't have the, uh, sorry to non-lawyers, but the um, Twomley-Iqbal pleading standard, you know, where you need to rise to the level of plausibility. You can just say, oh, I knowingly benefited. Okay, well. It's the, old, like it. it's the old Conley versus Gibson pleading standard for our I, uh, our true nerd listeners. Not even a year ago, I had opposing counsel argue, not in state court, in federal court, um, that uh, that they, they only had to satisfy Conley. And I was like, what in the car crash law hell is this? Um, okay. When you're citing Conley versus Gibson, it's a sign it's time to wrap up your <laughs> podcast episode. Um, right, but there's one more thing <laughs> in this in this, yes. in this no, terrible water bill, uh, and that is the whole uh, civil rights law section, which oh, talks yes, about yes, please quickly. The, uh, you know how God, it doesn't immunize that. against uh, discrimination claims, and I just want to point out that there have already been lawsuits against uh, social media platforms on the basis that they allegedly discriminated against people for being, quote, white heterosexual males. I mean, 
Oh, I thought you were going to go. I thought you were going in a slightly different direction, that it, it tries to make your political affiliation into a protected class. That's where I was going next. Um, you read my mind, uh, which many states have already started trying to do. I mean, uh, now, yeah, I am. Uh, you know, there are laws left and right being passed saying you shall not discriminate on the basis of political affiliation or views. I am a member of the uh, Communist Party USA. You, you know, you must platform. You cannot take me down when I, uh, you know, promote a Paul Potian genocide or whatever. And if you want any kind of insight into how shitty that goes, look at the Blue Lives Matter laws that basically make being a cop a protected class. Like there is no doubt that that state legislators will not plumb in this respect. And things that will be a protected class are things that you are not going to like being a protected class. I can promise you that. Well, Ari, this has been a real pleasure. I feel caught up on section 230. I hope the listeners do too. Is there anything uh, upcoming um, you'd like to highlight for us all to, to check out when it comes out or any, any work you want to talk about who even knows like sixteen thousand new things happen a day and all of them are dumber than the next uh but i am wrapping up a piece about why the whole trump uh section 230 is unconstitutional argument uh fails uh based on clearly established law and, and why it, it should fail in court so uh hopefully that'll be up soon um probably in lawfare but uh, we'll see but yeah that's that's the one thing, but you know what? Who knows? The, keep an take, eye, keep an eye on it, Twitter. Take it a day at a time. Yeah, follow Ari Cohn on Twitter. He's a very entertaining Twitter uh, personality, um, and I definitely look forward to seeing that piece. Well, uh, thank you so much, Ari, once again. And I'm Corbin Barthold, Internet Policy Counsel at Tech Freedom. Until next time. Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org. <laughs>